In my heart today, as I imagine for many of you, is Jean Herman, whose surgery is now scheduled for December 17th. And um, if he ever dart what goes around, comes around, um, certainly Mary, more than any other one person, has created this as a caring, supportive community. And it's uh, only fitting that um, we are there for them. Um, I also noticed that um, uh, some people who are here are Dill and Jenny, who are here now as a married couple as of a week ago. Congratulations. <laughs> the first meeting like this uh, happened in 1876, and uh, actually in those years the press was uh, eager to notice it and was quite critical. And in 1877, Felix Adler, founding leader, he issued a public statement, and this is what he said. Long enough now have we kept silence. Long enough have we allowed the charge of atheism to be brought against us. If it be atheism to deny the existence of their man-god, of the idol which they have set above the clouds, and which they blaspheme, calling that idol the highest, then we are atheists, along with all the great religious teachers of history. But if there be a standard, a higher standard, whereby to measure religious truth, then we return that charge of atheism. If God and good and good and God be one, if there is no God, save as he dawns in us in the act of doing good, then religion must teach people to know and to do good for its own sake. I believe in the law of righteousness. I believe that law sanctifies human life. And I believe in furthering that law, I am also hallowed in the service of the unknown God. Well, this remains a radical statement even today. But it's one that is based on some historical foundation. While the gods of the world are very different, God's laws for a good life are very similar. You might consider that when Moses, back 1250 before BCE, met God, his proof of that meeting was God's ethical laws. You shall not bow down to an image or an idol. You should honor your father, not murder, steal, lie, commit adultery, covet your neighbor's goods. The great insight of Buddha that made him the enlightened one was that the good life comes from doing good and produced a set of rules, his path for reaching that. But far more ancient, if we go back 4,000 years, people gathered in Egypt and Babylonia and what they did was they chanted. They chanted to drive out of their lives the evil spirits. Within this last century, those magical chants have been translated. The Egyptian Book of the Dead are chants that go this way. I have not impoverished the poor, oppressed the weak. I have not murdered. I have not falsified the grain measure. I have not taken milk from the mouths of babes. I have not damned running water. I am not robbed. I have not spoken falsehoods. I have not gossiped. I have not borne a grudge. I have not been violent. I have not said yes for no, no for yes. I have not broken my promises, and I have not cut the rations of the temple.
the magical chants that drive out evil are the ethical rules. If this ethical society is where God is spelled with two O's, if God and good are one, then it's rather essential that we decide what is good. To sum it up, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I intend this morning to present a couple of things which I think are complications that make it difficult and a few things that I personally feel certain about in response to what is good. Good, and this I think is the first problem, contradiction. Good, very simply, is the desirable. The problem is, in human life, there are four desirables. There's the aesthetic, the functional, the social, and the ethical. The aesthetic is the realm of the pleasant, physical pleasure, beauty, good feelings, good looking, good tasting, good taste. The functional is the realm of the useful, wealth, commodities, good job, good money, good car, good government, good health plan. The social, of course, is the realm of the relationship. Good family, good friends, good community, good times, good for each other, good opportunities. And then there's the ethical. That's the realm of wisdom about how the world works. It's the knowledge, self-knowledge, knowledge of what's good, good intentions, good purposes, good character, good habits. The good virtues, the good behaviors that make life work better. Now, the four desirables, unfortunately, are not connected. Good medicine may not be pleasant, but can function. Good looking does not indicate that you have good friends, good habits, that you function well. You can avoid aesthetics. You can uh, avoid relationships, live alone. You can own nothing that is functional, like in my house. <laughs> but questions of good and evil always have consequences. Whether you are active or passive or completely ignore them, they always impact somewhere, somehow, somebody. Every untruth, every unfairness, every unkindness, every dishonesty changes you and changes the people around you. While the aesthetic, the functional, and the relationship depend on circumstances, they depend on other people, the ethical is a choice that's always in our power to make. Once people make, made the good choice because they knew that God was always watching, make the good choice. While that metaphor has weakened, the truth of it actually remains. We are always writing our own story. Each ethical choice creates who we are. I'm the dishonest one. It creates our future. It creates our world. Every lie makes us a liar and our world a delusion or illusion. God is always watching. Every truth makes us more secure in what's real and how we're connected. God is always watching. There's always a consequence. This ethical burden is just too heavy.
we often simply avoid thinking about the ethical dimension of our choices and the consequences because it's a lot nicer to enjoy the satisfactions of the desirables like aesthetics and function and relationship. So ethics is difficult to pay attention to. The first complication to knowing what is good is that, in, that there is competition between all of those desirables and the ethical one is the most difficult. The second complication is that good seldom is a choice between good and evil. Good is almost always a choice between good and good. Responsibility is matched with freedom. Doing your duty, making your own choices. Are you free to leave your job and jeopardize the livelihood of your family, or are you responsible to fulfilling that role because you once freely chose it. Truth and loyalty. A friend speaks with hostility, exaggerated nastiness, untruth about another person. Obviously, they're vulnerable in their moment of doing it. Do you support your friend or do you confront them with the truth? Your child is cheated. Do you report them? And if you don't, are you condoning it? Truth and loyalty. Individual versus community. There is the tragedy of the commons. Commons is a shared environment, shared environment such as the air. If we run a business and we pollute the air, those of us who decide not to have higher costs. Those who don't bother and simply pollute, they stay in business. We, we who put in that extra cost go out of business. So only polluters survive until the air is gone. If you want to fish in the ocean, those who get the most fish do best until all the fish are gone. If you graze on public lands, the more, the more cattle you have on that land, the better you do until there is no land. And if you decide, no, I'll be a good guy, I'm going to hold back my grazing, well then someone else won't and the grazing will go anywhere for everyone. Natural resources, we consume them until they're all gone. And pledging to Wes, the lower you pledge, this the lower you pledge, the more you get for your money. <laughs> Until it's gone. Short-term, long-term. Do you savor the world or do you save the world? Do you spend a dollar or do you save a dollar? Justice versus mercy. A student knows that the rule for fighting is to get thrown out of this private school. He's in a fight. Reports that, that he had this fight. School throws him and the other guy out of school. Not to enforce the role would be to encourage breaking rules. It would be teaching the individual you could break a rule and get away with it. Self-indulgence. It would be not good for the other students. It would be bad for the reputation of the school. But not rewarding truth-telling, not understanding the reasons for the fight is uncare, uncaring. Justice or mercy. The second complication, therefore, is that the good is always in competition with the good. This is difficult and this is painful and thus we avoid paying attention to the ethical in favor of the aesthetic, the functional and the social. The third complication comes from contradictions that arise from three different methods, three different criteria that are used to decide what is good 
when the goods do collide. And those three principles are first the caring criteria, which is essentially the golden rule. It's the one supported by literally every single of the major religions of the world. Either do not unto others as you would not unto you, or sometimes stated do as you want uh, others to do unto you. Uh, the caring, that's the caring criteria. The second criteria is called the ends criteria, and that is do what's best for the greatest number. That's the utilitarian, Jer Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, uh, the ends criteria. And then there's the rules criteria, which is apply your ideal principles that are equally good for all people at all times. That um, categorical imperative is to act as if the ideal were possible, and by acting that way, you move us closer to the ideal. Of course, that's the thinking of Immanuel Kant and Felix Adler, founder of the Ethical Society. Caring ends in rules. The problem is that when you go to apply these globally accepted criteria for what is good, you don't get the same answers. You have a good and a loyal employee. They work, you work for a public hospital. It's been 30 years that person has worked there. Uh, they're close to retirement, but still got a number of years to go. They very much need their job, and more importantly, their whole life is wrapped up in that hospital, 30 years. But they cannot, he cannot adopt, adapt to the new technologies. What should be done? Well, the caring criteria is to simply keep him. I mean, wouldn't you want to be treated that way? Keep him. But the ends criteria says, what about the clients, the patients, the taxpayers? They would all benefit. There's more of them. To be more functional, we need a more functional person, even if it has to be at the cost of this one person. And then you got the rules criteria that says, a person should never be treated merely as a means to an end. Each of these greatly and widely accepted criteria brings us to some different understanding of what is good. The competition among the three criteria, caring ends and rules, the polarities between our values, the conflicts among the desirables, are the contradictions that make it very, very difficult to know what is good. Well, let me say some things about what I feel certain about in all this uncertainty. The first certainty is that to know what is good requires a perspective other than your own interests. In religions, this has been expressed as the perspective of God. I have found in counseling situations with people who are theists, it's very, very powerful when they're facing a dilemma to simply ask them, what does your God tell you to do? And I've noticed that they have come up with rather wise answers from that perspective. But we also know that sometimes the answer is jihad, which creates a problem. Jeremy Bentham, therefore, when creating a perspective, decides that the perspective should be from the perspective of the greatest number. Kant said the perspective should be from the realm of what's best for everyone. Well, in this century, probably the most influential philosopher has been John Rawls, Harvard uh, professor. 
And he speaks from the perspective of what he calls the veil of ignorance. That is to say that in dealing out the card game, you do it such that you don't know which hand is going to be yours. So that therefore you're ignorant in deciding what your race is, what your class is, what your country is, what your relationship is, what your religion is, what your wealth is, what your generation is, what your profession is. It's good if it's good for you, no matter who and where you are in the process. Well, my first certainty about the perspective is to see things from an organic whole, what Adler called the ethical manifold. That is, to understand that life is organic, whether we notice it every day or not. It's not hierarchical, meaning getting ahead, getting up, getting closer to power and wealth, although that dimension is in life. The real essentials in life is recognizing that it's organic, that each part, each person has something unique and essential, a role to play, and that the quality of our interaction between these people, that's what makes life, that's what makes human society work. It is the unique elements all interacting in a way such that we create a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. Is that not what a community is? Community, we do so many things, whether it's caring for each other or, or the raising money for the homeless. Whatever it is, we collectively can do that which individually we cannot. Bees toil, they know not why, but they play a part in some organic whole. And without bees, their pollination, all life would stop. Now, although the bees do not realize this, human beings, we can be conscious that we play a part in a greater whole that depends on the synergy, our synergy, for our well-being. What goes around comes around. The quality of our life depends on the quality of our relationships. My own first certainty is the need to see good from the perspective of the organic whole. And the ability, therefore, to empathize with all the pieces, to reason our way through it, so that we can experience life from more perspectives than my own interests right now. That is in my big interest. Now, the second certainty is that all human beings crave the good. Kant's understood human nature to include the urge to do good. And whether that is objectively uh, provable or not, you can for yourself answer the question by just noticing in yourself, do you have an urge to do good? Given you have urges to do many, many things, but is one of your urges to do good? Adler referred to that as the capacity for good in the human nature, which he saw as the basis of why we should treat people with inherent worth, because everybody had that capacity to be developed. <clears throat> a common assumption in philosophy, we're talking Spinoza or Hobbes or Locke, is in fact that all people seek the good. That Socrates, Socrates put it this way, no person ever craves or pursues that which he deems as bad for himself, but rather seeks out what he believes is good. Now, the problem of what is good is not a problem of the motivation of a person. The problem is the difference between what is apparently good and what's really good. 
That is a dimension of wisdom. The workaholic or the miser gets rich, but lacks the satisfaction that comes from how do you spend your money? How do you spend your time, your goodwill? Who do you care about? Who cares about you? How do you develop your, your talents? How do you make your life mean something beyond yourself? Those dimensions of life are never reached. So, good, I believe, requires seeing value clashes when there are ethical dilemmas, when there are value clashes. Not as a moment where we get to make a judgment as to who's right or who's wrong, as much as it is a teachable moment. It's awakening, it's a moment to awaken in a person their own urge to do good and to help convey a sense of what would be better. Not a moment of judgment, a moment of education. My first certainty is the need to cultivate in myself the perspective of an organic whole and myself as a participant in it. And my second certainty is that all people are doing good as best they can and we serve them by increasing their consciousness of what is truly desirable. <coughs> now, the sense of good, I believe, is an evolving thing. People in their first level of consciousness, good is defined as what is satisfying to the self. But pretty soon, self is identified as self and family, and then self and friends, and self and community, and self and country, and self and species. That, that expanding sense of self changes one's sense of, of, of priorities. My third certainty is the need in the, for the habit of listening to what is described in 1 Kings as the small, thin, small voice within. We live, we live in a very, very noisy world with many contradictory voices. And now that we have cable TV, each one has its own broadcast network. <laughs> Only by cultivating a good inner witness do we have an opportunity to accumulate wisdom by trial and error. Only then can I sort out all of the contradictions that exist among the four desirables, the functional, the aesthetic, the social, and the ethical. Can I decipher where I want to be on that continuum between the value polarities? And can I decide how do I want to apply the th criteria of caring ends and rules? Now, often we um, found, found base our self-esteem and our lovableness on an image of ourselves as being good at all times. If I could be perfect, then I would have perfect self-esteem. If I could be perfect, people would love me all the time. But of course, the problem with that is that we cannot be perfect. We can't even please one person without displeasing somebody else. The values are in contradiction. We are unaware of what's good. We're tired. We don't do our best. We make mistakes. We get into mean-spiritedness. Our having to be perfect becomes a problem. We cut ourselves off from even paying attention to our inner voice when our inner voice has bad news because that bad news is if I have not been perfect, I feel bad about myself. I don't feel lovable. Who wants to feel that? Let's just shut off that inner voice. When we try to be perfect, 
we <clears throat> end up feeling shame. And that shame makes us not want to see and not want to learn. When we link our self-esteem and our lovableness to perfection, that's when we stop paying attention to the voice of conscience. There's something that we can do instead that I have found very effective and powerful. And that is to rest self-esteem and lovableness not on perfection, but we can decide instead to rest it on a sense of being good. This is possible. That means having a voice of good so that when you have made a mistake, not been good, you don't have to defend your perfection. It never needed to be at all. Now what you have to look at, oh, what would I have to do now to be good? Given that I wasn't good previously, what do I have to do now? Because I'm a good person. Looking back, my only need is to be good in the now. Never, you never know what good is, really. But you do know when you're choosing other than good. You do know when you're choosing to lie. You do know when you're choosing to take more than your share. You do know when you're being unkind, uncompassionate. You do know when you're breaking an agreement, even if you don't know what good is. So that you can agree with yourself that if I base my self-esteem on being a person who is good, that I will take every single moment when I pause and decide to take a shortcut and say, whoa, wait, maybe I can think of a wiser, a wiser way to handle this moment. So I am certain that uh, goodness requires a perspective of an organic manifold. I am certain that everybody is doing their best and what they need is help along the journey from ignorance to wisdom. And I am certain that I need an inner voice that represents good, whether I understand what it is or not. It's there for that. The fourth certainty is the need to do our part to create a better world. You know, evil is obviously a matter of degree. And let me tell you the kind of evil that I see among us every day. Maybe not every day, every other day. There's broken agreements. People use put down, name calling, blaming, defending, not giving credit where it's due, not being compassionate, not telling the truth, damaging people's reputations, not doing our share. That happens, not uncommonly. These things are very important. But in my view, they are small slights compared to the great injustices that are in the world, which are so painful that we just do not want to look. Um, Ken Davis likes to say the problem with being a humanist is I've got to include everybody. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? To be a humanist means caring about people, not because they're in your family or your friendship circle or in their community or even in your country. It means caring about people and humanity and how humanity's doing. The greatest spiritual pain, I think, is that we 
feel suffering of other people while we are enjoying our lives. And that is just too hard to look at. The problems are too big. Governments should handle it, not take it personally. I, you know, we're doing a lot of work in El Salvador, and I have to tell you, I'm very moved by El Salvadorians. You know, in their country, there's 50% unemployment, and so 20% of all El Salvadorians live in the United States. And there, in El Salvador, if they do have a job, they earn between two and five dollars. And here, they can come and earn between, that's two and five dollars a day. And here, of course, they earn five to ten dollars an hour. But what impresses me is that of the, of the, of the um, import dollars that come into El Salvador, which is six billion dollars, two billion of that is sent by El Salvadorians who've come here, who've made it good, but send money home. Staying connected. You know, and just like us, they have taxes, they have church, they have mortgage, they have car payments, they have a life to live, and they are sending at relatively minimum wage masses amount of money home. You know, some of you know that Nancy, last evening, um, Nancy Montagna re returned from Peru. Um, you know, when you go to the, she went to these very remote villages, as we often do in International Partners, um, 14,000 feet, you know, places that hardly ever see gringos. Um, and she traveled there alone, which everybody knows is not safe. Uh, and they also say, of course, not only do you not travel alone, but a woman never goes out alone, even short walk alone. Just doesn't happen. And of course, you should never go to one of these countries if you don't know the language. Well, Nancy did all of those things. And how did she do it? She depended on the kindness of strangers. Was she lucky? I don't know. She got a tremendous outpouring of support from people. What happened when she went to these villages is what happens to us whenever we go. They are so shocked and pleased to see a gringo who's come all this way to their community. They want to show them their lifestyle. They open themselves. They are generous to a point of painfulness in terms of what little they have and how much they give. What she found there is people seeking training to understand what their human rights were under a democracy. They don't know. And they're tremendously abused because they don't know. She worked with people who want to stop family abuse, which in Latin America is extreme. She found communities that lack schools and health care. She found people working, making magnificent products, selling them for a dime or a dollar because there is no market for them. Wherever she went, politicians and journalists came up to her because Westerners were so seldom seen in remote places. What her visit was bringing and why, you know, I know this is the same thing that happened to us when we went, is that you begin by saying, why are they coming to see me? Why? And of course the answer is your visit alone is bringing respect and hope and someone who can see your plight. Well, Nancy's not the only one who's doing that sort of thing. She was there as a representative of you all, of international partners. And international partners now includes dozens of volunteers and hundreds and hundreds of people who are donating. 
It is the daily vision and commitment and the work of Paula Beckman, who makes her life passion caring about people who are in harm's way. And now we have Donna Duquette, who's taken on the responsibility of filling a gigantic shipping container of books and school supplies. And we've got Lula, who is now taking on uh, an orphanage in Sierra Leone. We've got Susan Runner and Barbara Blaylock, who are organizing 350 people to raise whatever we do, $40,000, for the hungry and homeless. We have the people who are working on Friends in Action, who go down to Luther Place. We've got Todd and Lynn and Susan, who are organizing to support people in the teenage years. It's because there are certain people who step up to do a good thing. There's not much in it for them except to do a good thing. What I'm certain about, most certain about, about what is good, is that the people who lead us to do our part to create a better world, that and they are what represents the highest good that I'm certain of. Thanks. <laughs>